Hmm, interesting. Okay. Hmm, okay. Wow, it's every Monday at 9.30. Okay. Cool. Nice. I, I haven't listened to this yet uh, anyway, but I'm going to write after this. Uh, they have a new episode. This interview looks really interesting. You know, I realize, I, I realize that um, actually when you know or have a connection to the people you listen to on podcast, or whether it's a friend, or even just some vague connection, it makes it more enjoyable, make, makes it more engaging. Um, this is a podcast called The Met Axe Sharpening. Um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to listen to this after, the, after doing this uh, podcast. Uh, do check it out. I have a link on my Facebook. Um, it's with, I'm assuming, another Malaysian named Zoe Wong. Um, she's presumably a musician. She's holding a guitar. But yeah, um, check it out. I'm going to check it out after this. I'll let you know how uh, what I think tomorrow. Uh, but yeah, welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. I have been up for 16 hours, almost something like that. <laughs> I'm so tired. But it's been such a good day. Uh, I don't talk about my work a lot, but I work... Uh, I love my job. I really, really do. I've been up since 2 something, 2 o'clock. So just preparing for this conference today. It went so well. So thankful. I work with such good people. Uh, <clears throat> uh, they're all medical professionals. So I feel really honored to be working with them. They're scientists. They um, work with patients. They're nurses. They're doctors. And I'm none of that. <laughs> just do support work. Uh, but it really thrills me to be able to be part of that bigger work um and yeah so that's what i did today that is done now it's the end of the day so i'm just counting down the hours before i can kind of like go to sleep i'm gonna skip dinner <laughs> i had like a snack just before this i don't need dinner i need sleep so i'll do this now read my four passages and then i'll turn in and tomorrow will be a new day so why don't i begin my praying Heavenly Father, thank you so much for days when we can tire out, you know, burn everything off and give thanks to you for the day that was. Uh, for some of us, it might not have been that great a day, but still it was a gift that you gave it to us. Uh, help us to recognize grace, even in moments of want. Help us to always be thankful to you because it all comes from your goodness and your generosity to us as your children. But thank you, Lord, for uh, for those of us who felt that today was, you know, um, so much, you know, we can actually think of and name the things that we are so thankful for, that you've blessed us with. Thank you for those things. Thank you for those people. Um, it is, again, abundant grace from your hand. And uh, we want to give all glory to you. We pray, Lord, that we will respond, you know, to, to these moments in a way that is faithful, that reflects, again, glory all to Jesus and just keeps us trusting in you more and more and more. So now as I read your word, help me to read it faithfully. Help me to focus. I, I really am so tired. Help me not to say stuff uh, that doesn't make sense. Please wipe out of everyone's mind. You know, Leave only that which is helpful, which is encouraging, which is um, God-glorifying, You know, which points us to Jesus. So pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today's readings are uh, February the 22nd. I think this might be the 95th or 96th episode 
I know that we have our hundredth episode coming out on Friday, so we're almost at you know hundred episodes, hundred hours, four hundred chapters. But yeah, still today, let's look at today's passages: Exodus chapter five, Luke eight, Job chapter twenty-two, and one Corinthians chapter nine. Let's look at Exodus chapter five. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, "This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says: Let my people go." That they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness, Pharaoh said, "Who is Yahweh that I should listen to His voice to let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go." They said, "The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest He fall on us with pestilence and with the sword." The king of Egypt said to him, "Why do you, Moses and Aaron, take the people from their work? Go back to your burdens." Pharaoh said, "Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens." The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, "You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves." You shall require from them the number of the bricks which they made before. You shall not diminish anything of it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, saying, "Let's go and sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it. Don't let them pay any attention to lying words." The taskmasters of the people went out with their officers, and they spoke to the people, saying, "This is what Pharaoh says: I will not give you straw. Go yourselves, get straw where you can find it, for nothing of your work shall be diminished." So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, "Fulfill your work quota daily, as when there was straw." The officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten, and were asked, "Why haven't you fulfilled your quota both yesterday and today in making brick as before?" Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, saying, "Why do you deal with this way with your servants? No straw is given to your servants, and they tell us make brick, and behold, your servants are beaten." But the fault is with your own people. But Pharaoh said, "You're idle. You're idle. Therefore, you say, 'Let's go and sacrifice to Yahweh.' Go therefore now and work, for no straw shall be given to you. Yet you shall deliver the same number of bricks." The officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble when it was said, "You shall not diminish anything from your daily quota of bricks." They met Moses and Aaron, who stood along the way as they came out from Pharaoh. They said to them, "May Yahweh look at you and judge, because you have made us a stench to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us." Moses returned to Yahweh and said, "Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you have sent me?" For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on his people. You've not rescued your people at all. Okay,、um, so it seems as if the plan backfires.、Um, <laughs> you know, not only does Pharaoh、uh, 
turn against Moses and reject his request to let his people go, but actually his own people <laughs> reject Moses and say, why have you brought this evil, this trouble upon us? And in the end, Moses goes back to God and blames God, say, why did you send me? You know, <laughs> everything backfires back to God. So Moses again says, why did you send me? You know, ever since you came, ever since I came to speak in your name, it's brought trouble or brought evil on this people. And it says, you, you God, you have not rescued your people at all. It's an accusation uh, that God has failed and God has brought more trouble than good in trying to save his people. What kind of salvation plan is this? Well, it's uh, God's salvation plan. And God already foretold that Pharaoh would not accept this request, that Pharaoh would turn and harden his heart against God. Um, so Moses um, begins by going to Pharaoh and saying to him, this is what God says. This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. So it's kind of funny because Moses is supposed to say this, but Moses says it to Aaron, Aaron says it to Pharaoh. <laughs> So it's kind of like Chinese whispers, but it's supposed to be faithful. It's supposed to be directly quoting God. This is what God says. It's not what I say. It's not my idea, but God is saying this to you through me. You know, Moses playing the role as a prophet, someone who speaks God's word on God's behalf. And Pharaoh says, you know, you don't know who this is. Who is he that I should listen to? his voice. I don't know Yahweh. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. So he rejects God's word, his voice. You know, I don't know him. And it's not just that I have no idea who he is, but I won't listen to him. I reject his authority. And Moses again, you know, delivers God's word. You know, God has met with us. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go the three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to Yahweh, our God. Otherwise, he will punish us. He will fall on us with pestilence and with the sword, with sickness and with death. I'm going to have some water. And um, Pharaoh thinks that, you know, it's because they're lazy. <laughs> Why do you take them from their work? Trying to run away from doing their jobs. You know, get back, get back to, to your jobs, get back to your burdens and, you know, make them rest from their burdens. And, but Pharaoh is pretty shrewd. You know, he didn't just say, no, okay, I won't let them go. But he comes up with this scheme to, I'm not sure whether he thought this through. Maybe he was just punishing the people. You know, he was just irritated with Moses. He can't get at Moses. So he decides to punish Moses's people. But I wonder, I wonder if this is Pharaoh's plan all the while to get them to rebel against Moses. So he says, you know, you shall require them to do the same amount of work, but you won't give them the material. So they have to do all the work they used to do before in making these bricks, but they have to go out and scavenge for the straw that they're going to use to make for the bricks. So um, that's the command that he gives to these taskmasters, these slave drivers of the people. He says, you know, you shall require them to make the same number, the same quota of bricks, but they have to make their own straw. They have to gather it in. So they have to do this plus the other job uh, of the additional job of gathering in all the straw. Um, and he says, it's because they have too much time. You know, they're lazy. You know, let's go and sacrifice to our God. Let them do this. And then therefore they won't be talking all these kind of idle talk. 
you know, let heavier work be laid on the people, and they won't pay attention to lying words. So they went out and they told the people, you know, this is what Pharaoh says. Now this is significant because earlier on Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, "This is what God says," and Pharaoh contradicts God's word with what he says. There, this is a competing authority of two different kings and two different words: God's word and Pharaoh's word. This is what Pharaoh says. You know, no straw, but go and get the straw yourselves. But you must meet the same quota. So the people they went out. They tried to get the straw. They went all over the place. Apparently, you don't get straw from a shop. You have to go around and look for these this straw. <laughs>、um, and and after they gathered the straw, I said, "Keep keep meeting your quota. You know, daily. You know, as when you had the straw provided for you. And when they didn't, they beat them. And they said, 'Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this? When you meet your quota?'" And the officers, that means the leaders of the people of these slaves, the Israelites, they came to, they they complained to their boss. So they complained to Pharaoh, saying, you know, there must be a mistake, some communication error. You know, you you didn't give us the straw. You know, the problem is with your own people, with the taskmasters. And then Pharaoh goes, you're lazy, you're lazy, you're idle, and that's why you say you want to go and sacrifice to your god. And you know, which means up to this point, they didn't know this was why they were being tortured. They didn't know it's because of Moses. They didn't know it's because Moses is trying to free them, and something must have clicked in their minds. Ah, I see. This is what Pharaoh is trying to do. He's trying to take his revenge on Moses by punishing us. Ah, <laughs>、uh, the fault is with your own people. No, no, no. The fault is with Moses. Ah. And interesting, you know, Pharaoh doesn't even mention Moses. He doesn't mention Aaron. He doesn't even mention God. All he says is, "That's why you guys." Oh yeah, he does say, "Let's go and sacrifice to Yahweh." Just mention God. But he says, "That's why you guys want to take this holiday to do your religious festival." So they saw that they were in trouble. Verse nineteen, when it was said, "You shall not diminish anything from your daily quota of bricks." And so, it just so happened, they meet Moses and Aaron on the way after coming back from seeing Pharaoh. And they said to him, "You know, may God judge you, may the Lord judge, you, look at you and judge, because you've made us a stench, you've made us abhor, abhorrent in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servant, and you've given them this sword to kill us, you've given them ammunition to punish us." And then Moses then goes back to God and blames God. So they blame Moses. Moses blames God. In the end, God gets the flack. You know, gets blamed for you know bringing this evil, bringing this trouble on his people. Well, what do we learn here? Well, we learn that we are very quick to try to find someone to blame. I'm not sure whether you come from that kind of culture in your work or maybe amongst your friends. Something goes wrong. Immediately, who is at fault? Who's the person who did this、uh, this horrible thing that made us have to work overtime? That kind of thing. You know, we're always finding someone to blame, and ultimately, if we can, we will blame God. <laughs> Again, remember the events of Genesis,、uh, where the man, he,、uh, the woman takes the fruit, gives it to the man. The man eats the fruit, but then the man blames God. You know, it's the serpent's strategy of overturning the the order of creation. It's supposed to be God ruling over man, 
man ruling over creation, but the serpent tricks the woman who gives uh, the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil to uh, the man, and the man then blames God. So it overturns that whole order of creation. And we see that same kind of overturning here. You know, God sends Moses to speak, you know, to speak to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh overturns that faithfulness, that dependence, that trust, such that they distrust God. They distrust especially God's word. And it's that temptation, therefore, to blame God when things don't go exactly how we think they're going. God's already said that it would it would happen this way, but still, when that hardship hits, when you know, salvation, when, you know, freedom doesn't feel very good, but it feels very painful, feels as if, you know, things aren't going to plan and we are suffering because of this. You know, we will cry out to God. We'll say all kinds of things. We'll find someone to be the scapegoat. We'll blame someone in our group that eventually that person will blame God. And that, that's just how the world works. You know, find the person who will take the blame, you know, and, and yeah, um, it, it creates a kind of culture whereby you're always just trying to get out of trouble. <laughs> you, you, you do the minimum amount of stuff, minimum amount of work such that, you know, you don't get into trouble. If you do, it's someone else's pro problem and you blame that person and that, that, that guy, that girl, you know, that, that's the one that brought me this evil. When actually, actually they forget that they're slaves. <laughs> they're, they're already being forced um, to endure the suffering and you know the people who are torturing them they're not their friends they're trying to use them and they're trying to turn them away from the only person who can save them the only person who's actually trying to to free them from their situation of slavery of painfulness of torture yeah okay as you can tell i'm tired <laughs> that was really tiring um but yeah, you know, even even like this, even even in this tiredness, you know, there's there's a part of me that goes, you know, God, why why are you making me do this right now? You know, to, to despise reading God's word, to despise and having to do this. Oh, you know, I'm doing you a favor. Why aren't you making this easier? And we forget just how good it is, the things that God has given us as the means towards our salvation, not least His word, not least the people He sent to speak His word to us. And we forget, you know, how precious it is that God promises us this goodness and this blessing and this freedom in Christ. And so we blame God when it's because we are connected to Christ that we suffer, when it's because we've been saved, that our lives aren't like the people around us. You know, we envy that and we, we lose sight of that perspective that God's plan, you know, he's the true king. Pharaoh isn't. He, he is the one with the power. Pharaoh is just temporarily trying to trick us into believing that he's the one with the power. He isn't. God is God, and no one else comes close. Okay, all right, I'm going to move on. <laughs> Luke chapter 8. Soon afterward, Jesus, he went about through cities and villages, preaching and bringing the good news of God's kingdom. With him were the twelve, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Wow. Mary, who is called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Seven. And Joanna, the wife of Cusas, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who served them, 
from their possessions. When a great multitude came together and people from every city were coming to him, he spoke a parable. Wait, let me just backtrack. He's going through all these cities, making stops, and he's preaching, you know, telling people about the coming kingdom of God. And he's accompanied by his 12 apostles. He, he recently appointed them apostles. And these women, interesting women, they're named, you know, Mary, who had seven demons. Joanna, who is from, who is Herod's steward, you know, Herod, this, this pretty evil king <laughs> who is imprisoned, John the Baptist, you know, she is actually, you know, maybe the head household steward, maybe someone works for him, for Herod. Oh, oh no, Kuzas, her husband works for Herod. And Susanna and many others who served him, served, okay, yeah, that means... I guess he, they're supporting him, maybe, um, yeah, accompanying him, but also supporting maybe with um, money, I guess. Yeah. And so verse 4, when a great multitude came together, he, he from every city, were coming to him, he spoke by parable. The farmer went out to sow his seed as he sowed, he's planting seed. Some, actually not, not it's so it means you scatter, right? You scatter the seed. So some fell along the road and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Other seed fell on the rock, and as soon as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. Other fell into good ground and grew and produced 100 times as much fruit. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, what does this parable mean? He said, to you it is given to know the mysteries of God's kingdom, but to the rest in parables, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, and so Jesus is explaining the different kinds of seeds. The seed is the word of God. Those along the road are those who hear, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart that they may not believe and be saved. So they don't even get a chance to believe this word. It just gets snatched away. It comes, you know, like, like the birds. They come in, like the birds of the sky that devour the seed, devour the word of God. Those along the road are those who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart that he may not believe and be saved. So similar idea. Those on the rock are they who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. But these have no root, who believe for a while, then fall away in time of temptation. That which fell among the thorns, these are those who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. So there's the one that has no root, that means they, they don't go deep, and therefore they shoot up quickly, they, they seem to receive the word with joy, but then they, they fall away because of temptation. So that's the one on the rock, I guess, on, on, on the limestone rock. So there's a layer of rock underneath. That's why the roots can't penetrate beyond a certain depth. Then those which fell in the thorns, you know, the thorns, competing plants that choke uh, this, this seed as, as it tries to grow. And this choking is with cares, riches, pleasures of life, or competing issue, uh, interests, competing loves that draw you away from God. 
and therefore there is no fruit to maturity. But, verse 15, those in the good ground, these are those who with an honest and good heart, having received the word, hold it tightly and produce fruit with perseverance. So same seed, four different conditions, four different kind of like recipients, different hearts, you know, having a good heart. So it's the last heart that hears it and holds on to it. So retains it, just doesn't just go past him, but it retains it in your heart. And then you produce this fruit again with perseverance, means you stick to it. You don't let it go. You keep on keeping on, keeping on in it. Perseverance. Verse 16, no one when he has lit a lamp covers it with a container or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand. Then those who enter in may see the light, for nothing is hidden that will not be revealed, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Be careful, therefore, how you hear, for whoever has to him will be given, and whoever doesn't have from him will be taken away even that which he thinks he has. His mother and brother came to him, and they could not come near him for the crowd. Some people told him your mother and your brother stand outside desiring to see you but he answered them my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of god and do it you start seeing a theme you know the word the word the word so it's the idea that you know this word is meant to be obeyed it's meant to be held on to and meant to be persevered in so that's the one that bears fruit that's the one that, you know, it's obvious, you know, you don't hide it away, you know, you make it obvious. It's again, the same idea of that food, you know, there's something that you produce that you reflect as a result of having this word. Nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. And therefore, you know, whoever has, if you have this word, more will be given. If you don't have it, you know, even what you have will be taken away. So that fruitfulness again, that perseverance in God's word. And finally, compared to his own mother and brothers, is that relationship with God. You know, if you obey this word, you're obeying God. You know, you're hearing his voice. And therefore, there is this relationship that you have with God, but more importantly, that God has with you. God calls you. Jesus calls you. His family, his mother and his brothers. It's not just because you have this familial, this family, this generational, you know, my dad, my granddad went to this church, or, you know, my people, you know, Chinese church means I go to a Chinese church, therefore I'm Chinese, therefore I'm Christian, and I go to this church. It doesn't work that way. Um, you have to hold on to this word. You hear this word and you do it. You obey it. Verse 22. Now on one of those days, he entered into a boat himself and his disciples. And he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A windstorm came down on the lake and they were taking on dangerous amounts of water. They came to him and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we are dying. He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and he ceased and it was calm. He said to them, where is your faith? Being afraid, they marveled, saying to one another, Who is this then that he commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him? I think this is probably going to be just one of those questions that is asked again and again. Who's this person? You know, he's more than what they think he is. Just this teacher, this carpenter, you know, he has this authority in what he says such that he can rebuke the wind. You know, he can actually, like the wind is a person. He say, hey, 
keep it down. Like if your neighbors make a lot of noise, like maybe they can hear me now. Make what are you? Why are you? Why are you doing this podcast every day? <laughs> keep it down. And I go, oops, okay, sorry. And Jesus does that to the wind and to the waves, and it hears him. It obeys him because there is this authority in his voice. And when they saw that, they were afraid. You know, who is this Jesus? He can even command the wind and the waters, and they obey him. So he has this authority over nature, over creation. Yeah, verse twenty-six. Then they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite. Galilee, when Jesus stepped ashore, a certain man out of the city who had demons for a long time met him. He wore no clothes and didn't live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, "What do I have to do with you, Jesus, you Son of the Most High? I beg you, don't torment me." For Jesus was commanding the evil spirit to come out of the man. For the unclean spirit had often seized the man. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and fetters, breaking the bonds apart. He was driven by the demon into the desert. So this is a very strong demon. They tried to chain him up. He, he <coughs> excuse me. He just broke the chains. He got loose, and so therefore, you know, he hung around in the tombs. Um, he wore no clothes. He's, you think of the Hulk, <laughs> you know, super strong, you know, really scary person. But this scary person is afraid of God, afraid of Jesus. What do you have to do with me? I beg you. He runs to him. He falls down before Jesus. Falls down before him and says, "I beg you, don't torment me." Jesus has this fear factor, even amongst this demon-possessed man. You know, that Jesus is able to torture him. Yeah. So Jesus asked him, "What is your name?" He said, "Legion," for many demons had entered him. So this is a man with, you know, full house, lots and lots of demons on him. The idea of legion means a lot. You know, you think of a legion, of, of I was about to say superheroes, <laughs> isn't there? But no, the legion of uh, army people, soldiers, soldiers. That's the word I'm looking for. You know, a lot, a battalion of soldiers. You know, that means a battalion of lots of these demons all occupying this one person. He must have. <laughs> had all these voices and all these different personalities or something, all these demons inside of him. Verse thirty-one. They begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Oh, this kind of this place, I guess, of of condemnation, this deep deep pit, abyss. Now there was there a herd of many pigs feeding on the mountain, and they begged him that he would allow them to go into those. Then he allowed them. The demons came out of the man and entered into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. <clears throat> oh, well, I'm burping. I was, I was, I was having this just before, <laughs> before doing the reading. Not a good idea, but very tasty. Um, where was I? Verse thirty-five. People went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who saw it told them how he who had been possessed by demons was healed. All the people of the surrounding country and of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were very much afraid. 
Then he entered into the boat and returned. For the man from whom the demons had gone out begged him that he might go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your house and declare what great things God has done for you. He went his way, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Oh, how interesting. They come out to see what had happened to this guy who previously was the scary guy who broke all his chains, he had demons inside of him, and they saw him in his right mind. And he was sitting at Jesus' feet. He was wearing clothes. And then they were afraid. So they were afraid of him because he was now normal, that he looked like them, that he was sitting at Jesus' feet. You know, they were more afraid. Well, not sure they were more afraid. Well, they were afraid of the demon, but they were also afraid of this man. Because here Jesus had actually exercised authority that cured him, I guess. You know, it's just so strange. Maybe it just freaked them out. Um, I wonder if there's like a human equivalent. You know, someone that you thought was so sinful, someone you thought could never become a Christian. You know, oh, you know that, that guy, you know, used to do all these kind of crazy things. And then now he's a Christian and you go, whoa, you know, what's going on? And maybe you're afraid because of that as well, that transformation, because you never thought that something like that could ever happen. Um, you know, if you ever have that kind of reaction from your friends, maybe that's a compliment. <laughs> maybe, you know, it's, it's a byproduct of them thinking that you could never change and God has indeed changed you. And they can see that change. And maybe it's a compliment. It's, it's actually shows that it's evident that God has done something in your life to transform you from the inside out. And so um, those who saw it told them how he had been possessed by demons. He was healed. And then they asked Jesus to leave them because, again, they were very afraid. So afraid, afraid, afraid. And then he got into this boat and he gone back. You remember Jesus crossing the lake, gets off the boat. Now he immediately gets back in the boat and leaves them. Uh, but the man actually wants to go with Jesus, and he actually begs him to go with him. But Jesus says, return to your house and tell them all the great things that God has done for you. And notice this, he goes away and tells them all the great things that Jesus had done for him. He makes that connection. Jesus says, tell them what God has done for you. I'm going to tell my family what you have done for me. He makes the connection between Jesus and God. He, he's, you know, he, he sees that. And... Uh, but still, you know, he actually wants to follow Jesus as his disciple. He actually begs him. And Jesus says no um, because, well, because, because, because it's better this way. This way he can go and be this missionary, be this evangelist and tell other people about Jesus. But also because he says yes to all these other evil requests. This demon-possessed man, the demons say, let me do this. You know, he beg they beg Jesus to let them go into the pigs. Jesus says yes to them. Uh, all the people from the town tell Jesus to leave and he says yes to them. But to the one person who wants to follow Jesus, he says no to him for his own good. Wow, okay. Sorry, the pipes are making interesting noises. Verse 40. When Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. Behold, a man named Jairus came. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come into his house. 
for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and he was dying. I'm going to put on my headphones because yeah. Okay. Excuse me. He fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come into his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes pressed against him. A woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her living on physicians and could not be healed by any, came behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. Immediately the flow of her blood stopped. Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes press and jostle you and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I perceived that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and fell down before him, declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. He said to her, Daughter, cheer up. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he still spoke, one of the ruler of the synagogue's house came, saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher. But Jesus, hearing it, answered him, Don't be afraid. Only believe, and she will be healed. When he came to the house, he didn't allow anyone to enter in except Peter, John, James, the father of the child, and her mother. All were weeping and mourning her, but he said, Don't weep, she isn't dead, but sleeping. They were ridiculing him, knowing that she was dead, but he put them outside, and taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. Her spirit returned, and she rose up immediately. He commanded that something be given to her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he commanded them to tell no one what had been done. So, ah, okay. So Jairus, this ruler of the synagogue, comes to Jesus to heal his daughter. And before he gets a chance to do this, this other woman comes and touches Jesus' cloak and immediately she's healed but along the way news comes that the girl is dead so there is this two events of healing that seem to be connected with one another and i think luke wants us to see that connection so firstly we have jairus and the woman jairus we know his name the woman we just don't know her name she's just this woman and jairus he fell at his feet you know he approaches jesus and he asks Jesus to do this thing. This woman approaches Jesus from behind <laughs> and she is so afraid to approach Jesus. She doesn't want him to know and, and actually Jesus has to compel her to come out to talk to him. And so here we have this man whom everyone recognizes, everyone knows, this woman who is unknown, this man who wants Jesus to heal his daughter, this woman who herself needs healing. And let's look at the woman first. She has this flow of blood for 12 years. This Jairus' daughter is 12 years of age, so there's a connection there. And she has spent everything, done everything she can to get other doctors to heal her, but nothing has worked for 12 years. This bleeding, this condition which would have drained her of strength, you know, this bleeding condition, but also would have made her unclean according to the Old Testament law. She couldn't go to church, she couldn't hang out with people, and therefore for her to kind of like make her way through the crowd to touch Jesus' cloak, this was breaking the rules. And that's why she's afraid, you know, to 
tell Jesus that she had touched him because actually touching someone made that person unclean. But she did. She went behind him, touched his cloak, and Jesus immediately says, Who touched me? And Peter says, You know, there are all these kinds of people here. What do you mean, who touched you? Everyone is touching you. Everyone is pressing against Jesus. But Jesus says, Someone did touch me. I perceive power has gone out of me. And the woman, when she realizes, you know, she can't hide it anymore, she falls down trembling, you know, it's me. She admits it. She tells him what has happened. And Jesus says to her very lovingly, very tenderly, daughter. Calls her daughter. Cheer up. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. But at the same time, okay, going back to Jairus again, she goes in peace. He receives this bad news. You know, she's healed. His daughter dies. And these guys who come, you know, to tell to tell Jairus, you know, they've come from his home. They said, you know, don't trouble Jesus anymore. You know, there's nothing else that can be done. So Jesus maybe could have healed her earlier on if he'd hurried. But no, um, Jesus can't raise the dead. That's, who, that's what they think. But Jesus says the same thing, uh, say, says this kind of like the same thing to uh, Jairus, to, to this fearful Woman, she said, he says, cheer up. To Jairus, he says, don't be afraid. Believe or faith, have faith, and you and she will be healed. So um, he calls for Jairus not to give in to that fear, but to trust in Jesus, the same way that this woman had trusted in Jesus. So they come into the house, and he didn't let anyone join him except his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and Jairus, and the mom. So outside the house, though, there was a lot of mourn mourners already, already, you know, this is a cultural thing. They would cry out and wail for, for the daughter. And when he says to them, don't cry, don't weep, she isn't dead, she is sleeping. From mourning and weeping, they turn to laughing and ridiculing. You know, they make fun of him. And they laughed at Jesus so much, he has to push them out of the room. Did you notice that? He had to put them all outside. He is a laughing stock to them. And, but what he does is he takes the girl by the hand and he says, Child, uh, get up and, or rise up. And immediately she rises up. You know, this is a preview, a, um, a kind of like foreshadowing of the resurrection when Jesus will raise us up from death. Jesus says, rise up. And, you know, he speaks to her and he obeys her and then he asks that something be given to her to eat. You know, meaning, meaning this is a physical, she, she's back to life. You know, she's hungry. She needs something to eat. And he tells them not to tell anyone. So the, there's, again, con lots of connections here. You know, this woman who's suffering for 12 years, this girl who is 12 years old. Uh, but also, you remember when Jesus said, someone touched me, you know, and Peter says, you know, what do you mean someone touched you? Peter is almost making fun of Jesus. You know, of course someone touched you. In the same way, all these mourners, you know, just disbelieve Jesus. They make fun of him. You know, they're like, ha, 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 how, what do you mean she's sleeping? And so Jesus has to push them out of the room. And finally, he raises a, her from death. Uh, similar again to this woman, you know, there's, there's no more hope for this girl. You know, and it's in this situation of no hope that Jesus brings hope. To this woman who's tried everything and she's almost given up hope, but trust in Jesus, Jesus heals her. To this girl that everyone says, you know, don't bother the teacher anymore. He raises her from the dead. So Jesus 
In other words, bring hope, brings life, brings blessing, brings goodness in the deepest darkness, in the deepest evil, even in the midst of death, in a situation where there is no hope, Jesus is that last hope. And that's the kind of idea of this healing accounts that happens here. It's not just talking about Jesus going around, you know, changing lives, that kind of thing. Jesus is turning lives upside down. It's situations like the demon possessed, possessed man, you know, where no one could ever imagine this person <laughs> ever being healed again. Jesus changes this person to be whole again. And same with the woman, same with the little girl. It's a picture of salvation, of conversion, whereby the person who becomes a Christian is the goner case. It's not just the person who is most likely to become a Christian, kind of like sometimes you go to school and you know you have at the end of the year most likely to succeed, most likely to become a lawyer, most likely to you know start a YouTube channel, that kind of thing. You know you have promise for this, and you might have category most likely to become a Christian, most likely to become a pastor, that kind of thing. Jesus, that's not conversion. That's not what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to take the hardest, hopeless case, death itself, that everyone looks at. Oh, this person is a goner. You know, nothing can be done for this person. Jesus changes this person, makes this person whole again, human again, from death to life, from sickness and absolute, not just sickness, it's hopelessness. This woman, 12 years, tried everything, nothing's worked, but only Jesus trusts in Jesus. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And that's what any Christian, I think, worth their salt, hopefully they realize that God has done for them. When he says he saves them, he, he pours out his blood to cleanse them. It's actually start that starting point whereby we were lost. <laughs> we were hopeless. We were closer to this demon-possessed man than we could have realized. But God raised us from the dead, lifted us up, and gave us and seated us together with his Son in the heavenly realms. That's the picture of salvation. That's the picture of what Jesus has done for us if you call yourself a Christian. Uh, believer, uh, son and daughter of God. Okay, so uh, two, two passages only so far. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to make it to the end. Okay, all right. Job chapter 22. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous, or does it benefit him that you make your ways perfect? Is it for your piety that he reproves you, that he enters with you into judgment? Isn't your wickedness great? Neither is there any end to your iniquities. For you have taken pledges from your brother for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You haven't given water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. But as for the mighty man, he had the earth, the honorable man he lived in it, you have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Therefore, snares are around you, sudden fear troubles you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and floods of waters cover you. Isn't God in the heights of heaven? See the heights of the stars, how high they are. You say, what does God know? Can he judge through thick darkness? Thick clouds are a covering to him so that he doesn't see. He walks on the vault of the sky. Will you keep the old way which wicked men have trodden? 
who were snatched away before their time, whose foundation was poured out as a stream, who say to God, Depart from us, and what can the Almighty do for us? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad, the innocent ridicule it, saying, Surely those who rose up against us are cut off. The fire has consumed their remnant. Acquaint yourself with him now, and be at peace. By it, good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth, and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you put away unrighteousness far from your tents, lay your treasure in the dust, the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. The Almighty will be your treasure and precious silver to you. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you. You will pay your vows. You will also decree a thing and it will be established to you. Light will shine on your ways. When they cast down, you will say, be lifted up. He will save the humble person. He will even deliver him who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered through the cleanness of of your hands. Uh, okay, Eliphaz. Is it Eliphaz? Yeah, Eliphaz, what are you saying to Job? <laughs> okay, um, hmm. focus, focus. Uh, okay, Eliphaz is, he begins with this question, you know, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Hmm. What does that mean? I don't know. My brain isn't working today. Oh. Is it that he's saying that, you know, you can't actually contribute to God's wisdom? You know, can you be probably are you going to make any difference? Is there are you going to tell him something he doesn't know? Um it's really more for your own benefit, I guess. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you're righteous, or does it benefit him that you make your ways perfect? Hmm. Speaking to Job, who's claiming that he is blameless stroke righteous, he's almost saying, makes no difference to God. I guess it ties in with that profitable, profitness, profitability <laughs> to God. Yeah. It is for your piety that he reproves you, that he enters you into judgment. Ah, okay, okay, okay. I, I think I get that, you know. It's almost as if you think you're making a difference to God, but really what you should be seeing is that God, only God can make that difference to you. You know, you can't actually, you know, argue your case to God, but you can only plead it and maybe God will then change that circumstances before you. In other words, you can't change God's mind. You know, you, you, there's, there's nothing to change. To, you, you can't contribute anything to his wisdom, to his judgment. Really, the only thing that you can do is plead that he will pour out something that will change your situation. I think, I think, yeah. So no point claiming you're innocent, no point trying to give evidence because, you know, he has all the evidence that he needs. So that's if Job is blameless, he's righteous. But I think the main argument he's making is verse five, isn't your wickedness great? So you're not even here. <laughs> you're not even neutral. Actually, you're in the negative. Neither is there any end to your iniquities. Actually, you're very, very negative. For you've done all these things, you've you know you know you've uh, you've tricked your brother, taken pleasures. That means you borrow money and stuff, 
and then you've taken advantage of him. You haven't helped the helpless. You know, you haven't given water to the weary. You haven't. You've withheld bread from the hungry. You've oppressed people. You've done horrible things, Job. That's what he's trying to say. But as for the mighty man he had earth, the honorable man he lived in it, uh, you have sent widows away empty. You're not like this guy. Or are you like this guy? I think he's saying you're not like this guy. You're not the honorable person because you've done the dishonorable thing by oppressing widows. And you've broken the, broken the arms of the fatherless. Yeah. And that's why you're being judged. I think that's why he's saying. Therefore, snares are around you. And fear troubles you, darkness, you know, all this, all this is just punishment, punishment. So you're not neutral. If you're neutral, even if you're neutral, you couldn't argue a place to God. If you're a neutral, God could maybe change the situation, but you're not even here. You are down here because you are wicked and you oppressed people and you did horrible things and therefore God is punishing you. Yep, so that's up to verse 11. Isn't God in the height of heaven? See the height of the stars, how high they are. So unreachable. You say, what does God know? Can he judge through the thick darkness? Thick clouds are covering to him so that he doesn't see he walks on the vault of the sky. What's the argument here? Um, there's this thick cloud, darkness. God walks on the above the clouds. Is that what he's saying? I guess he is separated by these clouds, maybe, that he can reach up to God, that God's domain is not the earth. Maybe something like that. Will you keep the old way which wicked men have trodden who were snatched away before their time, whose foundation was poured out as a stream, who say to God, depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent ridicule them, saying, surely those who rose up against us are cut off. I realize I'm just reading this again. <laughs> I know, my brain is just isn't working today. So that's that's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to read this a couple of times and hopefully something comes to me. That too has, has value. The fire has consumed their remnant. My problem is it kind of like is interweaved. Is he talking about the bad guy or the good guy? Is he talking about Job or is he talking about a person who is not like Job? Because this person who says to God, depart from us, you know, it sounds like someone who doesn't want to have anything to do with God. You know, this boastfulness, what can God do to me? And yet God fills their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. Is God saying this or is this person saying this? Uh, brain, brain work. Uh, well, it is what it is. I, uh, maybe next year when I come back to this, I'll, I'll know what it means. Acquaint yourself with him now and be at peace. By it, good will come to you. Please receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his word in your heart. So here's the advice bit he's giving to Job. Uh, if you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you put away your unrighteousness, lay your treasure in the dust. The goal of Ophir among the stones of the brook, the Almighty will be your treasure. So put away all these valuable things, you know, hide them away because God is your treasure. It sounds so Christian, you know, what he's trying to get Job to do. You know, God is your treasure, almost like a John Piper sermon. Uh, uh, please, please don't watch this John Piper. I really didn't mean that. But, you know, you know, you know what I mean. I, uh, I love John Piper. It's just that this is this is the kind of thing, a twisted version <laughs> uh, of, of that kind of sermon, whereby he's giving this advice as a kind of insult towards Job, 
that Job is, is, isn't doing this, that to Job, God isn't precious. Then for then you will delight yourself in the Almighty. You will lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to Him and He will hear you and you will pay your vows. You know what this sounds like? This sounds like the kind of sermon that someone who isn't very faithful uh, is trying to preach as a Lent sermon. You know, make sure you put away all your riches. Make God your riches. You know, make sure you put away your iniquity and delight in God. And then God will bless you and you'll lift up your face. And it's an argument just to get people to uh, do the thing that you want them to do, to feel bad about themselves, you know, just admit that they're wrong. And maybe if they're suffering and to say that that's why you're suffering, and therefore if you don't, if you do repent in this way, you won't suffer anymore, I think. For then, okay, then you'll make your prayer to him. He'll hear you. He'll, you will pay your vows. It's a, kind of a little bit like a salvation by works kind of thing. You'll also decree a thing and it will be established to you. Light will shine your ways. <laughs> I, I really just am reading this passage twice, that's all. When they cast on you, will say, be lifted up. He will save the humble person. Then he will deliver him who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Ah, this is interesting. This is interesting. So God will deliver or save the guilty person through the cleanness of your hands. This is interesting. Interesting. So because your hands are clean, God will use you to save people who are unclean. Isn't that interesting? This is, this is a very Jesus type of foreshadowing again. Um, and I think there's irony here because... Um, because I think he doesn't realize that Job is kind of like clean. Job is blameless. And I guess this is pointing forward to the time when Job will pray to God and God will forgive his friends who are unclean and who are wrong. So I think um, he doesn't realize the truth of what he's saying. And I think, yeah, I could take it that, like that. You know, this is a very ironic advice is people who give this advice who really need to take this advice themselves people who are condemning the person who actually in the end will be the agent of their salvation <sighs> yeah <laughs> sorry tired brain not working went to sleep um but yeah anyway for what is worth um yeah interesting interesting helpful reflective passage Okay, I'm going to drink a bit more water. Take a last swig of this bit of water and then try to make sense of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Oh, wow. Okay. This is Paul writing 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Aren't you my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, yet at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Have we no right to eat and to drink? Have we no right to take along a wife who is a believer even as the rest of the apostles? and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or have only Barnabas and I no right to not work? What soldier ever serves at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its fruit, 
or who feeds a flock and doesn't drink from the flock's milk? Do I speak these things according to the ways of men? Or doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God cares? Or does he say it assuredly for our sake? Yes, it was written for our sake, because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should partake of his hope. If we sow to you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we reap your fleshly things? If others partake of this right over you, don't we yet more? Nevertheless, we didn't use this right, but we bear all things, that we may cause no hindrance to the good news of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve around sacred things eat from the things of the temple, and those who wait on the altar have their portion with the altar? Even so the Lord ordained that those who proclaim the good news should live from the good news. But I have used none of these things, and I don't write these things that it may be done so in my case, for I would rather die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the good news, I have nothing to boast about. For necessity is laid on me, but woe is to me if I don't preach the good news. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the good news, I may present the good news of Christ without charge, so as not to abuse my authority in the good news. For though I was free from all, I brought myself under bondage to all, that I may gain the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain Jews, to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might gain those who are under the law, to those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak, I become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. Now I do this for the sake of the good news, that I may be a joint partaker of it. Don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run like that, that you may win. Every man who strives in the games exercises self-control in all things. Now they do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we are incorruptible. I therefore run like that, not aimlessly. I fight like that, not beating the air, but I beat my body and bring it into submission, lest by any means after I preach to others, I myself should be rejected. Oh, this is, this is a meaty chapter. So what is Paul arguing here? Well, initially he talks about his rights. He, he talks about, don't we have the right to this? Don't we have the rights to that as apostles, as apostles of your church? We planted your church. You know, am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus? Aren't you my work? You know, I planted this church. Aren't you the fruit of the gospel that I preach in your city? So he says, to others, I might not be, but to you, I should be. 
you know, you are the seal of my apostleship. You, you, you authenticate my ministry. The fact that you exist, you're a Christian, means that my apostleship is valid, that I actually preach the gospel to you, that God sent me to preach this gospel to you. But to those who are still critiquing him, his defense, to those who examine him, and he gives a comparison to defense, you know, he says, you know, don't we have a right to, you know, this kind of support, I guess, that other people are getting, you know, eating and drinking. And this idea of eating and drinking, it's saying just enough to get on. It's not saying big salary, but enough to be, to survive. That's the idea he's talking about. And don't we have the right to bring along a life partner, a wife who is a believer? Notice he actually emphasizes, you know, who is a believer. Uh, and the, like the other apostles, so I said, look at Peter. You know, he and the other brothers, the brothers of the Lord, they all have, are married. You know, I'm single. They all have families. I'm single. Don't we have a right to do what they're doing, you know, as apostles? Or is it just me and Barnabas? You know, they were a team who have no right to not work. It says double negative. We have no right to not work. <laughs> that means no right to not have to earn our own keep, not to have to go and deli do, do delivery jobs after pa pastoring and preaching the entire day, not having to earn our own money to f put food on our tables. You know, we don't have right to that because they have the right to that, but not us. For some reason, we don't deserve this. He says, what kind of soldier serves at his own expense? So I'm going to be a soldier and I'm going to, after that, I'm going to, you know, work in McDonald's so that I can go and still be a soldier and risk my life. No, actually, you support them because they're serving you. And that's the idea. It's not you're giving them this money because they deserve it. No, they're serving you and you're actually enabling them. You're freeing them so that they can do the service that you will benefit from. It says, who plants a vineyard doesn't eat its fruit? Who feeds a flock doesn't drink from the flock's milk? It's, it's saying that you are the fruit of this work that they've put into. You know, God has given it the growth, yes. God has caused you to bear this fruit. But the work came from the work that God caused us to do. And he says, this is like a human argument. Do I speak these things according to the way of men? He said, but doesn't, doesn't the law, doesn't the Bible tell us, the, tell us this as well? And he quotes from the Bible, from the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. This is Deuteronomy 20. Uh, so useful. It's already there. Deuteronomy 25. And the idea is as the ox is pulling the plow, you know, um, is it treading the grain? Is it is it harvest or is it plowing? Either way, <laughs> the ox is pulling something heavy. <laughs> Don't cover its mouth. The ox will go, will eat some of the grain as it goes through the fields. And they, and then, and they still does the work. It says, it's cruel to stop the ox from just taking a little bit because the ox is causing you to be able to pull in everything. You know, and so it's just, so don't, don't, don't be cruel in this way. And it says, is this just for animals that God is caring for? Isn't, isn't it just, isn't it especially for us, you know, who are his workers, his oxen? Yeah, yes, it was written for our sake because he who plows ought to plow in hope. He who threshes in hope should partake of this hope. If we sow to your spiritual things, meaning the gospel, 
is it a great thing for us to reap from you material things or fleshy things, meaning money, meaning support, meaning encouragement. You know, if you know, and other people, you're they're doing this. You know, they and this is talking, I think, of non-Christians. You know, um, uh, you think of today these motivational speakers, or you go on, on online courses. You know, say, oh wow, that's really good, and you'd be willing to pay money for that. How much more, Paul, who's speaking to you and teaching to you the gospel that will bring you eternal salvation? Now, this uh, at this point, you start going, "Oh wow, that's uncomfortably true," but you know, you know what? A, what it, this can be so abused. You know, people you're trying to use ministry as a means to gaining money. You know, gaining profit. But the moment you think that, verse twelve says, "We didn't use this right." Do you, do you get this? You know, Paul is building up, building up, building up. We have this right. We have this. We deserve this right. But we didn't make use of this right. And by the way, the word right is the same word that we found yesterday, the, the right to eat this food, you know, this meat offered to idols. And, you know, the person who has the knowledge of this, you know, he uses this right. But then in using this right can destroy the brother who is weaker in his conscience. And therefore, Paul says, you know, if I, if I destroy my brother, it's not worth eating this one. I'd rather not eat meat or eat this kind of sacrificial meat at all. I'd rather give it up for the sake of loving my brother. And Paul is giving a practical example that he has done in ministry, not just talking about food offered to idols, but here in ministry, that Paul has this right. He knows it, but then out of love and out of faithfulness, he doesn't make use of this right. Nevertheless, we didn't use this right, but we bear all things that we may cause no hindrance, no stumbling block to the good news of Christ, to the gospel. He doesn't want to be something that gets in the way of you just receiving this gospel immediately, directly. He, he just wants you to get all of it and not have to worry about, oh, do I have to pay for this? Or do I need to give something in exchange? Oh, this is so good. I need to, need to repay you. No, 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 no. No, this gospel is a free gift. And therefore, what I'm doing for you should be free as well. And he, again, he says, you know, we do have this right. Don't you know that those who serve around the sacred things eat from the temple, meaning talking about the priests. You know, the priests in the Old Testament were all provided for, you know, in terms of their food and their livelihood. You know, those in the temple, those at the altar, you know, even so, the Lord ordained that those who proclaim the good news should live from the good news. So Paul still wants to argue that you know, even though he does this, it's an exception. It is a good thing that your pastors get paid because the principle should be, again, with the ox, with the farmer who's planting and plowing. You know, so the person who is proclaiming the good news should live from the good news. They shouldn't have to do something extra, something different. If they're preaching the good news, they should be supported in this work because it is actually work, you know, like any job. And so, you know, the, this it, it's not a bad thing to compensate, in other words. But, again, Paul goes back to his own case. I have used none of these things, and I don't write them that it may be done. So I'm not looking, I'm not trying to change it either. You know, I'm going to continue offering this good news for free. I don't write these things that may be done, so I would rather die <laughs> than anyone would make this boasting void. So... <coughs> It's kind of like, it's, you know, he, he, he'd rather die. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't think of a better analogy than that. Kill me. <laughs> Kill me rather than, than give me this offering for this, you know, sun, Sunday 
sermon that I preach, you know, he, he wants this to be able to say, I did this not because of money, not because anyone made it worth my while, but I did this. I did this out of love for you and out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. I did this at my own expense. And I know uh, for if I preach the good news, I have nothing to boast about. So this thing, he's not talking about preaching in, the, in, in itself because that is something that he should do. You know, I have nothing to boast about because it's a necessity. God has given him this ministry. You know, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. That means he actually will be in trouble if he doesn't do this ministry. So he's not talking about ministry per se. But what he's talking about is not making the full rights of someone who is doing this ministry. You know, as a minister, he should be paid for doing this ministry, but he doesn't make use of it because he wants to be able to boast that he's done this for free. He's done this sacrificially. So uh, woe to me, but if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. And this reward, he's talking about a reward from God, reward from Jesus. But not if, but if not of my own will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Meaning, you know, even if I d he didn't want to do this, there's a faithfulness that he needs to fulfill. What then is my reward that when I preach the good news, I may present the good news free of charge, FOC, without charge, so as not to abuse my authority in the good news. For though I was free from all, I put myself under this bondage. And so here Paul is flexing himself. You know, he's trying to be all to all so that he can remove any kind of hindrance to the gospel. And so he gives us all these different situations. To the Jew, I became like a Jew. To win Jews. To those under the law, you know, he, he became as those under the law. He, you know, he's free from it. And without the law, Gentiles, you know, act, he becomes as if he didn't have the law, but actually he still is under the law of Christ to love one another, to bear each other's burdens so that he might win those without the law. So whatever situation it is, whether it's Jewish people, oh, you need to obey the laws of Moses. He just, you know, nothing bad with that. So, okay, yeah, sure, I'll just do that. Just so that, you know, I don't get in the way of your conscience. Again, it's the one with knowledge, loving those with the weaker conscience. To those who are free from the law, you know, come, let's go and eat, I don't know, uh, sweet and sour pork, that kind of thing. So, yeah, sure, okay, all right. And you, you need to realize that Paul, all his life, <laughs> never ate sweet and sour pork. But say, okay, yeah, sure, okay, right. Yeah, he become as, as if those without law. But he did make sure that he obeyed the law. He loves his brother. He bears their burdens so that he can win those from all these different backgrounds, different baggages. He can win them to Christ without any hindrances to the gospel, that he might respond wholeheartedly to this free gift of God. To the weak I became as weak that I may gain the weak. I am all things to all men that by all means I might save some. And he does this for the sake of the gospel, that he might be a joint partaker of it that he there is something that he's going to get get from this don't don't make any mistake he's he's doing this because at the end of the day the true reward is not from you even though he even though in a sense you know you kind of owe it to, to paul because he planted your church you know you he says you know i deserve to to be supported for this gospel but that's not the kind of reward he wants and he's willing to forgo that reward that right that he, he rightly deserves from the corinthian church because he wants a greater reward that reward is from Christ. It's a reward from preaching the gospel. It says, don't you know that those who run the race, you know, all run, but only one receives the prize. And it says, run like that. Go all out. 
train, don't give up, keep going all the way to the end. Run like that so that you may win. Every man who strives in the game exercises self-control. They do it to receive this, and you know, in, this is talking about the Olympics. You know, you do, you to get that gold medal, to get the applause, that prize-winning money. But we are are doing it for that. Other type of crown, that eternal crown, that incorruptible crown. So therefore, you know, Paul has this purpose, purpose, purposefulness in his passion and his suffering. You know, he does not run around aimlessly. He fights. He doesn't fight like beating in the air. But he uses all his energies and all his passions and all his all his sacrifices purposefully to give the gospel free of charge. And he beats his body into submission, so that after he's preached to others, he might not himself be lost, be rejected. So, on the one hand, there is this um, benefit, this crown that he will get if he strives and he completes this ministry. But on the other hand, there is this danger as well. If he doesn't preach the gospel in this way, if he isn't faithful in this way, there is actually a danger that he himself might be lost. The scenario whereby other people around him they're all becoming Christians, but actually, hey, this person who is preaching the gospel isn't a Christian. He himself hasn't got it. Everyone else has gotten it, but he, because of this greediness, because of this compensation that he's so obsessed over. Why isn't people paying me? Why aren't they giving me this attention, this glory, this particular benefit I'm supposed to be getting from the gospel? Why aren't you getting that? Actually, that itself can disqualify you not just from ministry, but from the gospel. You, you might, you yourself, if you don't get how this gospel is free, that it is worth sacrificing to make it free, you yourself might not have received this free gift. That's why he means after I've preached to others, I myself should be rejected. And so here, this is almost a pastoral and a preaching point to pastors. Uh, it's saying that you know, for our own good, for your of your ministry, that integrity, but also for your own salvation, don't get too hung up about being compensated for doing the ministry and the work of the gospel. Because at the end of the day, you know God is the one who rewards. At the end of the day, you know you shouldn't be too eager to make use of this right that you do deserve. But you know, actually giving up this right is a good thing, because it makes the gospel look good, and it assures you that you yourself. Have recognized that goodness of the gospel. You've received it yourself. That you aren't lost, even though you are able to save many people. That's the most. That's the biggest tragedy. Now, the biggest tragedy is not that the pastor then falls, or the pastor then loses hope in the gospel, but that the pastor thinks that he's saved but isn't. But everyone else around around him is. That's the irony, whereby someone can actually preach to others in such a way that they all get it. But he doesn't, and the way in which you can maintain that integrity and just kind of like make it clear in yourself that you understand what it is that you're doing is to forego that right, the way that Paul forgoes it, so that he can boast that he did not, you know, labor for nothing, that he offered this gospel, you know, free of charge. He would rather die than anyone should make his boasting for it. But he wants to be able to boast that he offered the gospel the way it should be offered, freely, sacrificially, and to all. 
all men, weak and strong and under law and without law, to all men, so that he might save some. <clears throat> okay, now going to end. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Paul, for pastors like Paul, for Bible study leaders like Paul, for friends like Paul, who sacrificially preached the gospel to us. Thank you, Father, that it is Jesus who gave his all for us. Thank you, Lord, that when we look to him, it is worth it to sacrifice, to give our lives, to give our all, that we might display his goodness, his free gift, and this wonderful good news of salvation that comes to all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and good night. Oh, good night. Bye. Oh, done. Done, 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 done.